Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 149, The Crimean War, The Treaty, and the Aftermath. Last time, we saw the end of the Crimean War with the signing of the Treaty of Paris. Today, we're going to go over some of the treaty and how it affected the combatants, with particular emphasis, of course, on how it changed things in Russia forever. The far-reaching effects would eventually lead to the end of the Romanov dynasty. The immediate reaction was jubilation in Vienna, Paris, London, Sardinia, and Constantinople, with quite the opposite mood in St. Petersburg, as you would guess. Well, what you're going to learn today is that while Russia was the clear loser, the Allies didn't gain as much as they thought they would. You could call it a pyrrhic or hollow victory, but you have to take the long view of history because some of the losses came many years after. Now, if you remember the last episode, I talked about the Russian victory at the Battle of Kars, which, at the time, didn't seem to have much impact on the overall war. What it did do was have a major impact on the peace negotiations. So let's go to the negotiations, which had a major impact on the future of each of the countries involved. First off, who were the representatives to the negotiations? Well, the Russians sent Prince Alexei Fyodorovich Orlov and Philip Graf von Brunel, while the British sent Clarendon and Cowley, the French Waleski and Burkini, Austria sent Boal and Hubner, Turkey sent Ali Pasha and Mehmed Jamal Bey, with Sardinia sending Count Cavour and the Marquise de Villamarina. The British arrived with the position that it was their way or no way. This was met with a certain amount of hostility from the Russians, obviously, but also to a lesser effect from the Allies, especially the French. Now, Russia's main goal was to end the war without being totally humiliated. They knew they lost, but they had to save some face, because internally the country was on the brink of a collapse both economically and socially. I cannot emphasize enough how dire the situation was in Russia. There was unrest in Ukraine with a nationalist movement being stoked by a contingent of Cossacks. Rebellions were popping up all over, reminiscent of the days of Stenka Razin and Pugachev, but all, though, were quickly squashed. You know, I always feel good when I can pop the name of Stenka Razin, my favorite Russian character. Tsar Alexander II's envoys also had to counter the increasingly punitive position that the British were taking towards them. Not only did they want to punish the Russians, but they wanted it to hurt badly. One of the main issues they wanted was the independence of Georgia as well as Bessarabia. This, of course, was to be totally unacceptable to the Russian delegation. The French sided with the Russians here, but they needed their former enemies to give the Allies something in return, namely cars. Yes, that seemingly unimportant siege that the Allies didn't think would matter in the long run, did. In exchange for the return of cars to the Ottomans, Britain would drop their demands. As Clarendon wrote to Lord Palmerston, quote, The state of things which I predicted to your lordship has arrived. If we continue to demand that which Russia is now certain to refuse, we shall stand alone in the conference, and the emperor's manners last night left me in no doubt that there were, in his mind, mingled feelings of surprise, regret, and vexation at what he thinks is our exigency. But 
which we, he will soon consider to be our obstinacy. The French, and especially Napoleon, wanted Moldavia and Wallachia to be joined to form the new nation of Romania, as they were considered to be Latin lands, which would be favorable to France. But neither Austria nor the Turks would back that plan, so it was agreed that those two provinces would join under, with Serbia under Ottoman rule. This was the seed that would one day lead to the spark that started World War I with the assassination of Grand Duke Ferdinand in Serbia in 1914. So you see this long-reaching arm of the Crimean War, which so many have forgotten with the 100th anniversary of uh, the start of World War II being this year. The Russian diplomats put full pressure on the French to back their contention that they could not allow for the independence of Georgia, as well as the new demand for the lands of Circassia and the Caucasus to be freed. The Austrian Boal sided with the French and Russians, which greatly angered the British contingency. It was a major reason for the breakdown in relations between the two countries. By March 30th, 1856, the treaty was signed with each country feeling like they came out better than when they went in. The Russians felt like they weren't totally humiliated, while the Allies felt like they stopped the Russian bear once and for all. Only Sardinia felt like they received nothing in return for all their work and their involvement in the war. As Clarendon also wrote, quote, the only exception to the general feeling of satisfaction is on the part of the Sardinian Piedmontese, who lament that no measure should have been taken to remedy the evils under which Italy has so long labored, and who distrust, more perhaps than they are quite justified in doing, the policy and intentions of Austria. The Austrians had dominated the Italians and had their predecessor country, the Holy Roman Empire. This led to a deep dislike of the Austrians and would eventually lead to their independence in a few years. Both the British and the French sided with the Sardinians, which further alienated them from the Austrians. So who was the biggest winner in the aftermath of the Crimean War? Well, you wouldn't have known it from what I just told you, but in my opinion, and of most historians, it was Victor Emmanuel II of Sardinia. Because of his involvement, he was able to get the French to help him with the Italian Risorgimento, the movement pushing towards the unification of Italy. The smallest of the forces in the war gained the most because of it, and it wasn't the immediate impact. It took a few years, but it did happen. So who do I think lost the most? Now, this is the one that may surprise you, but it's the country that didn't even fight in the war. It was Austria. Not only did they alienate the French and British for a number of reasons, the Russians, formerly very good friends, now viewed them with contempt for staying neutral and not abiding by an agreement they had after the Napoleonic Wars. This caused Austria to begin to fight with the up-and-coming power of Prussia, which was to recreate itself as Germany, taking with it many of the principalities that were formerly under Austrian influence after the Austro-Prussian War of 1866. The Austrians quickly went from one of the most powerful nations in the world to a second-class citizen, so to say. They eventually merged with Hungary and would later side with Germany in World War II and World War I. And we all know how that turned out. Now, the French came out pretty well after the war as they became the preeminent power in continental Europe. It became closer to Russia as a buffer against the rising power of Germany, but still stayed allied with the British. 
The closeness with Russia occurred after the deposing of Emperor Napoleon III and the formation of the Third French Republic, and some will say the Crimean War sped up this de deposition of Emperor Napoleon. So there was one other you know, little ramification of the war. Now for the British, they were at their zenith of power. You know, Queen Victoria was the head, it was the Victorian era, but there was one little uh, glitch here. It was the uh, vote of no confidence against George Hamilton Gordon, the fourth Earl of Aberdeen, as the Prime Minister in 1855. He was then uh, replaced with Lord Palmerston, who we've mentioned many times. Uh, it did cause a you know, great rift in the Parliament for many years, and it's because of things like the Charge of the Light Brigade, the grand losses of the British troops, and the suffering that caused this change in government. So what finally you might ask about the Ottoman Empire? Well, the sickly country really didn't benefit all that much, except to hold off its disintegration for a few more years. They were to lose many of their gains, if not all of them, following the Russo-Turkish War of 1877-78. to as for the Russians, they lost face. And they created an atmosphere in their country that was to culminate in the revolution of 1917. Their economy was in shambles, and there was a great social upheaval going on. This is when people began to really think about revolution. Beforehand, under Nicholas I, Alexander I, you had revolts. You know, we went through that in those series of uh, podcasts on the revolts back under the time of Catherine the Great and before. But this was different. This was the whole country starting to think this way. The intelligentsia began to rise. The middle class began to say, something's just not right here. Now, Tsar Alexander II felt that the loss in Crimea was a message from God that serfdom needed to come to an end and that general reform was needed to save Russia from itself. He began to move in that direction, but that was stopped short when he was assassinated in 1881. This led to the reactionary rule of Alexander III and his son, Nicholas II, and the end of the Romanovs. Many feel that the Crimean War was the catalyst that sparked the revolutionary movement and the eventual collapse of Russia and the creation of the Soviet state. Well, I hope you enjoyed this brief review of the end of the Crimean War. Join me next time when we begin a short series or one long podcast on the influence of the Mongol invasion on Russia. Now, I want to tell you something about this one. You might think, well, of course there was a grand influence. The Mongols, you know, closed the borders. They, you know, dominated Russia for hundreds of years. Of course they had to have a great influence. But there's a lot of historians out there that say, not so fast. The influence wasn't as great as you think it is. And I'm going to bring both sides, those who view that there was a grand influence and those that begin to think, hey, you know, not really that much. You know, yeah, there was a little bit of, you know, blocking off of uh, Russia from uh, the rest of Europe, but it might not have been as great as everybody's led to believe. So I think it's going to be an important subject to discuss, and especially since it's going to be episode 150. But I'm going to be taking probably about a month off before plunging into this topic as life, and in particular business, going to take a lot of my spare time. But I'll be popping in on the Facebook page of Russian Rulers History. So, now as always, Dasvidanya Ispasiba Bolshoya.